The Gist is brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. Buy any five bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free and receive free shipping. Just go to chwine.com and enter the promo code GIST at checkout. And by 1-800-Flowers.com, offering beautiful, abundant bouquets. Right now, get two dozen multicolored roses for just $29.99, just in time for Mother's Day, when you visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash GIST. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And John Kasich today dropped out, explaining to supporters that he hadn't realized that delegate counts don't work like golf scores. He was surprised to learn, really, that anyone was doing that poorly. And also, he said, for a while now, people have been saying he's mathematically eliminated, mathematically eliminated. He didn't understand the adverb. Why not just say eliminated? You just mean eliminated. The mathematic part, it just complicates things. No one likes math. So, stupid media. You can blame the media. Kasich does still believe that he, he still has some momentum, some good, solid second place in New Hampshire momentum. And, you know, you got to honor that. You got to see how that plays out. Ted Cruz also bowed out. Here he was last night talking to supporters. Boundless optimism for the long-term future of our nation. Why wouldn't he believe in the future? Well, for one, there's what he said in the past. In fact, the day before... And the country is depending on Indiana. If Indiana does not act, this country could well plunge into the abyss. So if Trump wins, it's the abyss. Trump did win. And all of a sudden, it's morning in America. Not to be outdone by Cruz's mendacity. Trump himself mightily praised his erstwhile rival. And he has got an amazing future. He's got an amazing future. In fact, Trump went on to say, he reminds me of another exciting young politician. That man's name was John F. Kennedy, who was unfortunately assassinated thanks to the help of Ted Cruz's father. Oh, no, wait, that's what I was saying yesterday about lion Ted. But I meant Leonine Ted. The guy's a lion. And now the gist presents the Carly Fiorina vice presidency, an oral history. Presidential candidate, Ted Cruz. Running mate, Carly Fiorina, historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. No, sorry, that's it. It's over. This has been the Carly Fiorina vice presidency, an oral history. On the show today, you might be worried. I'm happy. Two New Yorkers are running for president. I win. It's a win-win for this guy. But you might not. You might be upset about it, which is why we're reconvening the much-requested Trump anxiety hotline. But first, you've looked at the calendar, right? May 4th. May the 4th be with you. That sort of pun is below the expansive intellect of my next guest, Cass Sunstein, who has seriously contemplated how Star Wars explains all. I've been talking up Cameron Hughes wine for a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. They pay me to do so. But I think it's a compelling story. You know, it's it's bottles of wine that are worth maybe $100 that they sell to you for like 25 bucks because there's surplus in all the vineyards in Napa Valley and in Sonoma. And Cameron Hughes knows how to get these. They take the label that they normally sell them off. They slap the Cameron Hughes label off and boom, there's like an 80% discount. And we're talking about wines that are rated over 90 by Wine Spectator. So I've been talking this up, but I haven't actually gotten my hands or lips or mouth on a Cameron Hughes wine. I'm going to draw this out a little bit. 
I got the free shipping and you're going to find out how to us also when I read the special offer code. But I opened the wine and it looked good. It looked like wine. It looked like the kind of thing I was just so happy to get it and unpack it. And it looks like it's going to be just an impressive wine to put on the table. And there's a story with the wine. Put you in the position of serving this expensive wine, but saying, oh, I have no affectations. I'm not out to impress you with a $130 bottle of wine. I know that you have such good taste that you enjoy the wine that would cost $150. But trust me, we're doing this on a budget. We all win. Luxury wine at affordable prices. Here is the deal. Buy any five bottles of wine and get one bottle of Pinot Noir free. And you get free shipping to get a free bottle of Pinot Noir at $25 value and free shipping, go to chwine.com and enter the code GIST at checkout. chwine.com, shop for your wine, enter the code GIST at checkout and receive a free Pinot Noir from me and free shipping. So there was this old story. It's not a story. It really happened. Two great interviewers of their day, Bob Costas and Larry King, and they challenged each other with a guest who the interviewer in question wouldn't know. And Larry King said, okay, Bob Costas, you're to interview Mario Cuomo. And it went really well. Bob Costas did a good job. And then Larry King's assignment was to interview without any preparation, just resting on his skills as an interviewer, Meatloaf. And it did not go well. I was reminded of that as I hold in my hand The World According to Star Wars by Cass Sunstein. Because somewhere out there, there must be some pop culture writer who has been challenged to write a legal review journal article. Because Cass Sunstein is the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard, and he was served in the Obama administration. And he's actually the uh, most prolific legal writer we have in America, cited more than anyone else. And now he's turned his sights to Star Wars. Hello, Cass. Uh, Hi. After Star Wars became really huge, to the surprise of Lucas, he really embraced this uh, this hero as a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell way of looking at narrative. Did you buy it? Did you buy that he was informed by that beforehand? Or do you think that he was kind of grafting on some highfalutin messages to essentially explain a good Flash Gordon serial? Well, one thing about Campbell and the Hero of a Thousand Faces stuff is that he wasn't saying that the people throughout cultures who were had this narrative, which is kind of in Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam, he wasn't saying that they, they knew about a hero of a thousand faces. He was saying that it's kind of in the human psyche in all yes. of us. Right. And I think Lucas, to the extent that he wasn't directly influenced by Campbell, he was tracking what zillions of people have from their own psyches produced. At what stage he got on to Campbell, unclear. I think it's lovely to think that it was relatively early, certainly not in the first scripts, but relatively early, maybe around Empire Strikes Back, that he that the hero's journey was something that he was informed by. He certainly has said that. So I think it's a combination. The early scripts where Luke wasn't the hero at all, yes. and Darth Vader was, was basically a side character. The early scripts didn't have any of this Hero of the Thousand Faces stuff. I don't think it's unfair to say that Lucas was in the first trilogy influenced by Campbell. There is, of course, this uh, double-edged sword that if you get the idea of the Hero with the Thousand Faces or the collective unconsciousness, many names for similar theories, if you get it right, you create something universal. But if you get it slightly wrong, you're just replicating a cliche. 
Completely. So failed TV shows that we don't remember or movies that were not successful are having that plot. So you have to do something in terms of the, the visuals and the narrative that complicates it. And uh, Lucas succeeded in that. I think some of the great comic book heroes, Batman, uh, ca captures that. Jessica Jones completely captures that. And that's, I think, the most recent incarnation of the idea of a hero's journey. And so it has to be executed with a little a little originality, mm -hmm. or otherwise it seems it has no life. That's right. You can have all the ideas you want about universality and the hero's journey, but if that lightsaber didn't have that really cool hum that the sound engineer figured out by putting his Zenith television in the back of a console or a thousand other details, it, it wouldn't be good. I think one way to get at the difference between the, the prequels and the first trilogy is the prequels, I, I have a somewhat higher view than most people, but I think no one would say they were inspired. Yeah. It, it wasn't like genius caught fire in those. And in the, in the original trilogy, they, they're inspired. Do you think that when you're younger, you're just bursting with so many thoughts and then the, the, the key is to harness them? And when you get older, you know how to harness them, but the key is to generate them? That's a very good question. Bob, Bob Dylan, in a great interview, said, uh, you know, he doesn't know where all that stuff came from that he did when he was young. Uh, he said it was like he was touched by something. And he said, very poignantly, he said, I can do other things now. Yeah. But I can't do that. Yeah. Well, then again, he was so much older. Than he's younger yeah, yeah, than yeah. He's younger now. Yeah. So, so, so I, I don't know if there's a, a, a generalization about what happens over the age span. Some people, when they get older, they are basically going in the tracks they went before. Some people, when they get older, they 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 get a well of creativity that kind of bursts through with something amazing. I think with people like Lucas or, you know, uh, great musicians like Dylan. It can vary. Sometimes, and I think Dylan is, is an example, you come up with something really spectacular when you're no longer young, and it is extremely creative and novel. What about with you? To get out of those ruts, do you do things like write books about Star Wars instead of uh, behavioral economics or law theory? Well, I, I, I never really feel in a rut. I might be in a rut, but I never <laughs> feel in a rut. So, uh, you know, if you're a law professor, you write a lot of stuff, and some of it, thank goodness, will never see the light of day. And you kind of feel in your right shoulder, roughly, whether there's a little tickle. And if you feel that little tickle, you know you're onto something that might be worth publishing. And if there's no tickle there, uh, you keep it on the computer. Now, there are a couple arguments put forth that I thought you argued them well, but I actually disagree with. You make a case that Star Wars was, it was very important to uh, the success of Star Wars when it came out. And of course, that's true to some degree or another. And yet I think that often in the culture, we make that argument too much. I can't tell you how many pieces I read about the popularity of the X-Files in the 90s is that we're in a conspiracy mode. No, we're not. It was just a well-executed TV show. And in fact, I think we were less conspiratorial than, than we were post-Watergate or even that we are now. So why is, do you think, but for the time of the 70s, Star Wars couldn't have 
caught fire, that sort of original vision in a time that was long ago in a galaxy far I, away? I completely agree with you. So I, I play with the idea with some people hold and explore the idea that the reason for Star Wars spectacular success was it fit with the culture and the time. But but I don't, I don't believe that for a minute. I think that is often an ex-post explanation. Taylor Swift, uh, you know, fantastic success because it was after 9-11 or uh, Harry Potter was just what was needed uh, or given the economic downturn, Adele, of course. Yeah. And the last one, I think, seems completely nonsensical as it is, but it's not less nonsensical than the others. Is she like a, 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 the comfort food version of a singer? Is that the Adele argument? I just, sure. I just men mentioned her name yeah. in the economic yeah. crisis. I didn't even have an account. <laughs> so I completely agree with you that th- this account, which a number of people have about Star Wars, is uh, a um, uh, after-the-fact reconstruction that makes people feel a click. But I think you're completely right that whether it's true or not is extremely conjectural, and I don't believe it for a minute for Star Wars. To think of Star Wars 10 years before, 10 years after, if it did well as it would if it were as cool for the technology of those times as it was for the technology of its time, then you could also generate, uh, it it fits with the zeitgeist story. So don't believe zeitgeist stories. But do you think that works of art that do really resonate with the zeitgeist are lesser? Because sometimes I think that they're written off as such. Oh, it was just the right moment. But other times I think it's, you could brilliantly capture the moment, and that deserves every bit of respect as something universal. Well, back to Bob Dylan, he was a 60s kind of a guy, also a chameleon and a shapeshifter, so whatever time he was in, I think he would have had a good chance of breaking through. And he, I think, you know, deserves tribute for the reason you gave. There's a guy, I think, named Barry Maguire, if I remember right. Yeah, did a song the Eve of Destruction. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, man, that's not a good song. And it was, it did well then because it captured maybe the most tinny aspect of the time. But Dylan, there's a creative well that humanity has that Dylan tapped, and he tapped it for his time. So I agree with you. If there's yeah. something great for the time, that deserves you know, applause. And if it's only great for the time, then it'll be, who was that guy? Was that Barry Maguire who did Eve of Destruction? <laughs> right. And then there was an even worse answer song called Dawn of Correction. Do you remember that one? I'm pleased to say I've suppressed <laughs> the thought of Dawn of Correction. So I do have, there. I have a couple problems with Star Wars. I love it so much. Little niggling plot problems. And how do you do the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs if it's parsecs a unit of uh, of, sp- of distance? I can explain of... that, by yes. the way. I'm sure Lucas figured this out. <laughs> if you take a certain route mm-hmm. with space, yeah. then you can do something really fast. Oh, okay, cool. And that's what he meant, yes. I'm sure. <laughs> and I think in, in The Force Awakens, I... I don't know how Finn could hold his own with Jedi Master Kylo Ren. Fine, maybe Finn has some Jedi in him. Maybe Kylo was very injured. But my big thing is this. My big problem with fully embracing this is the same problem I have with Harry Potter, that they both depend so much on the Chosen One myth, the Christ Child myth. And I just think that's an anti-democratic ideal. And I think it's uh, a little bit mystical, which is fine for a work of fiction. But that's why you can't graft it on to real life so much. 
Now you work in the Obama administration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so you worked I, in the Obama I, I, administration. I take your point. Yeah. So uh, the idea of a chosen one obviously resonates within the human mind, and a lot of cultures and myths are organized around it. I think we would say that even though the chosen one idea is the Star Wars theme, there's a lot of stuff there about republics and separation of powers. And I think it'd be too strong to say self-government is the political message of Star Wars, but certainly anti-self-government is a political enemy in Star Wars. Okay, so my last question is this. You thank your wife in the credits, and in the beginning you say she's not a Star Wars fan, but she was good enough to go and give you even line edits on the book. And that'd be fine. You don't have to be a Star Wars fan. Except if they're the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, I would like that person to be informed with Star Wars, as your wife Samantha Power is. Should we worry about that? I think she is now sufficiently informed by Star Wars that she's able to do her job more effectively than if she were not informed by Star Wars. Thank God. And by the way, when you chose, um, when you posited a couple either ors like Star Wars versus Star Trek, and one was uh, Meryl Streep versus Julianne Moore, it doesn't surprise me that you chose Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, who yeah. I th- yeah. who played Samantha Bauer yes. in, in a play on Broadway. Shit but, happens, right? Uh, but that's not <laughs> why I like Julianne Moore. She's an amazing actress. Cass Sunstein is the author of The World According to Star Wars. It's just shorter for me to read the title of the book than all the things he's done, like working in the White House and co-authoring Nudge, and writing Simpler, The Future of Government. Thank you so much. Good to meet you, Cass. Thank you. A pleasure. Mother's Day is almost here. I mean, it's really almost here. This is the fourth. Mother's Day's the eighth. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're waiting for this. 1-800-Flowers.com. You got to go right now. This is an extremely limited time offer. Time is tight, but I'm going to tell you about the offer. It's a 24 rose bouquet for a limited time only, very limited, 24 roses for $29.99. It's a full bouquet of two dozen roses. I've done the math, slightly more than a dollar a rose. It's a great saving of over $20. I'll also do the math. It's regularly $50. They're going to give it to you for $30. And here's the thing. That's what their regular price is. You know, everywhere else on Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, those prices go up. And I guess I I used to feel bad for the flower people, but that's where they got to make their money. And so I guess you got to be the victim, but don't be the victim. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com and get this special offer of a 24-rose bouquet, multicolored roses for $29.99. 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist. So you put the word gist right in there in the URL from your desktop or your mobile device. 1-800-Flowers.com slash gist. The offer's waiting for you there. And now the spiel. It's the Trump Anxiety Hotline. All right, Hotline Volunteers, it's going to be another tough day. Brew another pot of coffee. Remember, reroute all the really tough calls to me, the supervisor. All right, there's one. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. Hi. um, I'm really worried that if Trump is the nominee, I mean, I know that everyone's saying that he has less of a chance than Hillary, but it's down to two, and one of them is Hillary. She's not popular. Help. Let's talk about how unpopular Hillary is. For many years, she was really quite popular. She lands on the list as most respected American woman. All right, that's usually a proxy for who's ever first lady or often Hillary Clinton. She and Oprah were going neck and neck with that. But yes, lately and especially since she's been running, her unfavorability ratings have been higher than her favorability ratings. She is at negative 12 
a net 12 of unfavorability. And negative 12 ain't good, but it ain't 25. And that is Donald Trump's net unfavorability. Since they started polling in 2015, no poll has ever found voters more favorable than unfavorable on Trump. He is setting the unfavorability record. And whereas some of Hillary's unfavorability came from the bruising she took from Bernie Sanders that usually happens during a, during a primary, presumably most of Trump's unfavorability has just been from stuff he said. Most people don't look at Trump unfavorably because Scott Walker or even Ted Cruz may get, made an argument against him. It's just the stuff he himself says. Now, an election... When, it, when someone wins an election, they always say this was a referendum. It's not a referendum. An election is a choice. And because of that, it does not really matter if one candidate ain't that good, if the other candidate is truly horrible. It's the difference political science term, the delta, between those two candidates that matters. So if one's a car crash, but the other's a train wreck, if one's a dumpster fire, the other is suburban Aleppo. That's what matters. All right, next call. Hello, Trump Anxiety Hotline. This is Megan. Okay, I know you've been saying not to worry about Trump's chance, chances in the general election, but you're a pundit, and pundits are wrong. You pundits were so wrong about Trump for so long. What makes you think you won't be wrong now? I get this a lot. We get this a lot here. But let me explain a few things about the nature of knowledge. While an unexpected result does rightly force us to question how much we know, it doesn't automatically mean that everything we knew was wrong. Einstein set science on its ear with E equals MC squared, but that doesn't mean that Isaac Newton got gravity backwards and that we're really flying off the Earth's surface. So let's talk about the black swan, right? Here's Nassim Taleb's famous construction about why he foresaw the economic meltdown, because he subscribes to the black swan theory in Europe. They said there's no such thing as a black swan. And then they saw one, they had to rewrite everything. But the black swan theory, which explains the truly unexpected result, we had one here. The black swan theory does not say there are no such things as white swans. It just means that there exists the possibility of this truly unexpected result. Though Trump's appeal to downwardly mobile working class white swans does complicate the analogy. So let's check in on the everything we thought we know was true idea. Trump won. We did not see that. But Santorum, Huckabee, Pataki, Gilmore, Fiorina, Jindal, Perry, we never thought they had a chance. Guess what? They didn't have a chance. For a time, we were saying, maybe we got Ben Carson totally wrong. No, we got Ben Carson totally right. That guy cannot be president. And while we thought that Christie, Rubio, and Jeb would do better, they're all moderates. They're all in the same boat. It wasn't a year for moderation. Most candidates actually performed to the expectations on the Republican side. One wildly outperformed, Walker, Bush, they surprisingly underperformed. On the Democratic side, we thought Hillary would win. She did. And it wouldn't be close. Well, did we really think it wouldn't be close? Most people who know politics know that in primaries, things are usually kind of close. And that's at best what they were. They were at best kind of close. If anything, we thought that Martin O'Malley would give her a tougher time. So it turned out to be Bernie Sanders. But this isn't in black swan territory. This isn't in existence of platypus denied, no proved territory. This is just Bernie Sanders did a little bit better in some primaries, mostly caucuses, than we thought he would. It's not like everything we thought was right is wrong. But you know who got it right the whole time? The polls did. 
Donald Trump led in every single national poll since the day he announced in June of 2015, except one for Ben Carson about three months before Iowa. So that doesn't mean that no one saw it coming. That means that everyone saw it coming. Everyone who was polled as a potential GOP primary voter. And when the general election voters are taken into account and they say, who will win, Hillary or Donald Trump? Hillary wins by an average of six or seven points. Mona Chalabi of The Guardian tracked down the last 67 head-to-head polls. Hillary wins 58. Three, they tie. And six, Trump wins. Four of those six are within the margin of error. Hypothetical head-to-head polls are not the end-all, be-all, but that's usually because we haven't seen what happens when one candidate concentrates his fire on a general election opponent. But with Hillary, we kind of have seen that. And since this is the big question, this is the er question, this is why the Trump anxiety hotline was found. I'm really worried he could win. Why should I believe you? You guys have been wrong. Let's just point out some truths. Trump has a base of white working men who haven't been doing well in this economy. He has almost zero appeal to Latinos. Last election, Mitt Romney lost Hispanics by 44%. Trump is going to lose by a lot more than that, and a lot more Hispanics are going to vote. All right. Trump doesn't have much appeal to black people. Whatever he does is more than counterbalanced by African Americans' strong preference for Hillary Clinton. They helped her win the primary. Trump's doing terribly with women. Republicans have a women gap. More women vote for Democrats, but white women actually still vote for Republican. I'm not sure that Trump's going to win the vote of white women. White women still do vote for Republicans, despite the gender gap. They voted for McCain. They voted for Romney. I'm not sure Trump's even going to win the vote of white women. So if you don't have the vote of black Americans, if you don't have the vote of brown Americans, if you don't have the vote of women Americans, who's left? White men which pre-1916 was almost all the vote. I'll give you that. But in 2012, it was down to 35% of the vote. It's going to be less this time. Winning white men by the margins that Trump won is a way to win the GOP primaries. And to be fair, he also won the votes of most of the women who voted in the GOP primaries. But you can't do that in the general election. It is impossible. Having a base almost entirely of white men may work for the primary, may work for the Fortune 500, may work for owning a sports team, hosting a late night show, being a member of the Washington Generals, both kind. But to quote a famous losing white man in a presidential election, not gonna do it. All right, next question. Hi, um, Trump anxiety hotline. I'm a Muslim and I fear violence. I worry that Trump is going to lead to more attacks against foreigners or perceived foreigners or Muslims or even perceived Muslims. I read about one attack today. Am I wrong to be afraid? All right. Well, I will say this. You perhaps have reasons to be anxious. According to the FBI, there are 481 anti-Islam hate crimes in 2001. So that's an, a monthly average of 40. A researcher named Brian Levin in the UC system found that over the last five years, there were 150 anti-Islamic hate crimes per year, monthly average of 12. So they went down right after 2011. There's some indication that they're going up a little bit. So this is the FBI statistics again. The total of anti-Muslim hate crimes, 135 in 2013, 154 in 2014. We still don't have all the figures in 2015, so there's a bit of a lag. So they are going up a little bit. The question is, is it Trump that's prompting them? I don't know. 
I think there is very likely to be an attribution error that whenever there is an anti-Muslim hate crime, people will blame the tone set by Trump. But you know, the tone set by Ted Cruz isn't much different. But I would say, and this is just to show that we're not Cassandra's here at the Trump Anxiety Hotline. I would say be careful out there. Next question. Trump Anxiety Hotline. I fail to see how any good can come of a megalomaniac narcissist liar. Lying Trump liar, liar. He's a liar. I got to clear my throat because I'm so angry. I don't know if I should call the anxiety hotline or the anger hotline. I've got a few numbers, but I'm so angry I keep misdialing. I got a couple of Trump-related hotlines to call, including the Trump unhappiness hotline. I am not happy about this. You know what? You should be happy. And I'll tell you why you should be happy. Because this means Hillary's going to win. Hillary's going to win the presidency. I can't guarantee it, but it seems quite likely. And if the Republicans had nominated a moderate or an appealing candidate like Rubio, Kasich, or Scott Walker, that candidate would really have had a chance against a vulnerable Hillary Clinton. We think now that candidate wouldn't have had a chance because that candidate did so poorly in the Republican primaries. But Republican primary voters are the people who voted for Donald Trump. They're not a good indication of what the general American public thinks. Hillary Clinton's going to win, not Trump. So would you rather have a couple months of this anxiety, or the very real possibility of a GOP win? I can answer that. You'd probably have the assurance of a GOP win. People hate anxiety so much that studies show they would rather have the certainty of a bad thing than the possibility of a bad thing, meaning also the possibility of a good thing. That's how much people hate anxiety, but that's what keeps the Trump anxiety hotline funded. But it's not just a Hillary win. And I say this to appeal to you because I can tell by the tone of your voice that you're a likely Democrat and you want Democrats to win. So it's not just a Hillary win. This Trump candidacy kills down ticket candidates. Already candidates in close states are wondering what the heck should we do with Trump running. There will be no coattails effect. There might be the negative, the negation of a coattail, a meat suit effect, you know, so repelling that people run away from it. I'm not saying the House will be in play, but if Hillary Clinton becomes president and there's a real possibility that Democrats control the Senate, she can actually craft an agenda. And that's what Obama had. After eight years of muscling through that stimulus and Obamacare, after eight years, there are tangible positive benefits. That's what you get. So are you so selfish that you wouldn't trade some anxiety for six months if you get good policy in eight years? Or would you rather have less anxiety but then bad policy. And even if you're not a Democrat, if you're a moderate Republican, this is a good result for you because this will moderate and reform the GOP. They have to reform on immigration. They have to reform on Latino issues. Trump is going to lose so badly, so profoundly that it will finally convince the GOP to change on immigration. The elites know they have to change, but the base still goes for these anti-immigration policies. Maybe finally one day the base will say, wow, we gave it all we could with Donald Trump and his wall. What a horrible failed policy. But even if the base doesn't say this, the changing demographics of America and the wisdom of everyone who will run after Trump loses in 2016, they're definitely going to have to tone down their anti-immigration issues or they'll never win again. This is what's going on with Trump. You have to draw the enemy near. You have to wait until he's right on top of you. You have to hold your fire until you see the whites of his 
size and his constituency, and then you blow it up. This is the best possible outcome for the Democratic agenda. For any hope of moderation in the Republican Party, this deals the largest possible blow to the dopey, unable to be wrangled, Limbaugh, Palin, Tea Party wing of Republicanism. But it only works if you tease it out into the open and then eviscerate its standard bearer. All right, this is the Trump Anxiety Hotline. Until next time, and I assure you, there'll be a next time. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is working on an oral history of the term squad goals. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is working on an oral history of planking, owling, T-bowing, and batmanning. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is working on an oral history of the hopper or ads for the hopper. Good ads. What the hell is that thing? We also had help today from Al Smith, Vidya Keshavan, Catherine Weinkoop, and AC Valdez. The gist. We're still panicking over flash mobs in the knockout game, and we're doing an oral history of them as part of our Casualties of the War on Christmas series. And thanks for listening. I've got a few Trump-related hotlines, including the Trump unhappiness hotline. In case you can't tell, I'm not happy about this.